You're listening to BuddhistGeeks.com. November 5th, 2007. Episode 44, Bodh Gaya is the City. In this final segment with Buddhist teacher and author Sharon Salzberg, Gwen Bell asks Sharon about the experience of being on retreat, what her impressions of Bodh Gaya were, and what her next steps as a student of the Buddhist teachings are. This is part three of a three-part series. This episode of Buddhist Geeks is sponsored by the Do No Harm Movement. To find out more about the Do No Harm Movement and to receive a free Do No Harm bumper sticker and wristband, please visit www.donoharm.us. If you were going to just spend a day in a retreat situation at IMS, what, what would it look like rising and going to bed and all that? How is the time structured? Well, first of all, I should say we're really nice by and large. So, you know, it's like there's a structure, but we're not militant. We don't police people and we're not on people like, oh, you didn't, you know, you didn't come to the early morning sitting, you know, our general tenor is very kind, I think. I find structure tremendously supportive. I think I have just that kind of mind where I could dither away forever. Like, should I sit now? Should I walk now? I don't know. What should I do now? You know, and and there's the schedule. So it helps me a lot to have that. And at the same time, one doesn't want to be imprisoned by it. You know, so the average wake up time at a retreat would be, you know, 4.30 or 5 in the morning. Uh, And breakfast is around 6.30. And then there's usually sitting, walking, sitting, walking at 45-minute increments, something like that. There are several opportunities throughout the day for questions and answers. So when we say silent, it doesn't mean you never speak to anybody, but people don't converse with one another. And that's also very interesting. A lot of times people, as they enter the retreat, will say that the single thing they find most unsettling is the idea of being silent. You know, they don't like that very much. Or people will say, my partner said you'll never make it. You know, you won't be silent. And one person actually said, they're doing a betting pool at my office to see how long I can handle it. They don't think I can be silent. But almost always at the end of the experience, people look back and say, one of the most beautiful aspects of the whole experience was the silence. For once in our lives, we can be a little quiet and we don't have to be so concerned with other people and, you know, what they think of us. We don't have to present ourselves to someone as interesting or boring or, you know, defeated or exciting or anything. It's like we can just go within and be with our own experience. So it's a beautiful aspect of it, except for the question and answer periods or the instruction periods throughout the day and the meals. There's also usually some kind of meeting with a teacher if not every day, every other day, something like that, either in groups, small groups, or individually, so that there's more time to ask questions and try to clarify your practice. And then in the evening, there's usually 45 minutes or an hour where a teacher's giving a talk or discourse and and then sleep. (laughs) Bad. (laughs) My first retreat actually was with Thich Nhat Hanh. You mentioned that he's coming to New York City. So Buddhist Geeks listeners, go check him out. That retreat, we we did have a silent portion. Uh, I think it started after dinner and lasted until after breakfast the next morning. I thought I was going to hate the routine of it, you know, that every day the schedule looked exactly the same. Not like summer camp where every day was filled with something totally different (laughs) or church camp, you know. But I actually found that the routine made it 
possible for my mind to come to a, a state of calm or a state of, you know, settled that allowed me to notice that there was, there was a lot of variety in my life just by being a human being. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's our cultural conditioning anyway, you know, that we, you know, should never be bored from the moment we're born till the moment we die. And sometimes I think the whole culture is built around this idea of stimulation. But in fact, we're not bored if we're paying attention. You know, people say, oh, just another breath. But really, it's not. Or just as you describe your experience, you're doing the same thing, but it's all totally different when we're actually paying attention to it, which we rarely do because we're thinking about the next more exciting thing we can do instead. I think maybe it's a personality type. I don't know. But the bored thing is even something I'm still working with, noticing when I think that I'm bored. And you talk a little bit about, if I remember correctly, this concept of waiting. Finally, you ask, what am I waiting for? Like, it's right now. Right now is what's happening. Ram Dass also kind of says, now is, it's now and now and now. So we shouldn't really have an opportunity to be bored because if we're really getting present, then where's boredom? Where's there room for boredom? Indeed, where is there <laughs> room for boredom? But I mean, we're all so conditioned, you know, so it's not a surprise. And, and I wouldn't, you know, want anyone to feel judgmental about that tendency that they see inside themselves. It's just, it's a very strong conditioning and it takes a lot to unravel it, to see it, first of all, for what it is. And and then to just come close to our experience, you know, like a lot of meditation instruction is actually pretty simple, but it's very powerful, you know, but it sounded like when I was first in India, it sounded so simple to me that I was kind of contemptuous of it. I thought, well, what's this, you know, like feel your feet against the ground or feel your breath, you know, how boring is that? And I think I came all the way to India, you know, for something <laughs> esoteric and magical and exciting and wondrous. And this doesn't make any sense, but in the actual doing of it, it's just as you described, you know, you suddenly feel connected. And in that connection, there's interest. And in that interest, there's learning. And even though it's just a breath or it's just another cup of tea. You did have a wondrous moment under the Bodhi tree, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us about the first time that you saw the Bodhi tree? Like what you smelled, what you heard, your, kind of the sensory experience of it? For those of us who haven't made it under the Bodhi tree yet. <laughs> Well, it's a very beautiful tree. The leaf shape is such that um, it's very elegant. And uh, it all sort of comes to this one point, which is like symbolic of our enlightenment. I love that tree. I haven't seen it in a long time, actually. It's very, very beautiful. And, and this was the end of 1970. So it was a long time ago. And there would be pilgrims, you know, from everywhere coming, every Buddhist country. But the town itself wasn't so built up. And so things were very simple. You could sit under the tree all night, you know, just get permission of the temple that's up there. And the, the stoop of the temple itself is extremely beautiful. And I, I really do feel, you know, for me, it's like I, I even realized when I was talking to you before, you know, since I spend so much time in New York City, it's like we have this funny habit of calling it the city, like it's the center of the universe, you know, and, and I heard myself do it when we were talking. And and uh, it's actually something I talk about sometimes when I'm teaching because it's a very funny habit. And I can remember going to to the Bay Area after I, you know, spent a bunch of time in the city. And people would say, the city. And I'd say, New York? And they'd say, no, San Francisco. Or even funnier, you know, when I started spending time in the city, people would say to me, have you read the paper yet? And I'd say, which paper? <laughs> you know, and they'd look at me like, the New York Times, there's only one paper. But I, you know... Uh, unlike really feeling that New York City is the center of the universe, I do believe Bodhgaya is the center of the universe. I really do. You know, that was the feeling that I had, like, 
oh, this is it. This is this is like the center point of existence. And, you know, there's the stupa, the temple, the tree, and the grounds. And it's really magnificent. So at any given time, there'll be Tibetan monks and nuns doing prostrations, and there'll be Thai practitioners chanting and uh, people circumambulating from all over the world. And it's really quite extraordinary. It's interesting you talk about your, you know, perspective shift of the city when you're in New York. Or when I was in Japan, I saw Japan in the center of a map for the first time. And I was like, you know, there's water all around it. And why would you put Japan in the center of all this water, like in the center of the map? And I think really one thing that travel does is it kind of dislocates that part of the brain that says, here I am, I'm in the middle of it all, and everything else is happening around me. Well, as Joseph Goldstein actually said about the stupa at Bodhgaya, he said, the beauty of it is commensurate with what happened there, which is quite a statement. I think you're you were telling of Mara visiting uh, the Buddha is, it was so poignant. I mean, it was just to listeners, uh, reading Sharon's book is more like reading a piece of fiction than it is reading a dry Buddhist text. So you just weave it in there like that story. And uh, for people who don't know what happened, can you, can you tell us a little bit about when Mara visits the Buddha there at that tree? Sure, and then I'll tell you uh, about someone's comment on that in the city (laughs) recently when I was teaching. The uh, legend around the Buddha's enlightenment is that he left home at the age of 29, having seen the four heavenly messengers. He spent six years practicing austerities and then finally decided that wasn't the way, that that wasn't the, that kind of harshness and self-punishment, self-mortification wasn't the way, just as he discovered that all the indulgence he did in his first 29 years wasn't the way either. After those six years, he came upon this tree. And before he got to the tree, I think he ate some milk rice or kheer, which you can find in Indian restaurants all over. Uh, And every time someone eat some in front of me. I say, well, you know, that's what the Buddha ate just before his enlightenment. Um, So he ate something uh, and got some sustenance because he hadn't been eating and uh, went and sat down under the tree. Now, in those days, uh, he was known as the Bodhisattva, not not as the Buddha. The Buddha is the awakened one. And the Bodhisattva is someone who has dedicated their life to that aspiration of awakening. So As a bodhisattva, he sat down under the tree with the determination that he was not going to get up until he was fully realized, until he had broken through all of the barriers and the uh, kind of bonds of convention and ordinary ways of seeing and had become completely free. So as the legend goes on, he was attacked by this figure known as Mara, who's symbolizes like they call him the killer of life and the killer of virtue. He's kind of a satanic kind of figure. In Buddhism, and, and Mara attacked with all kinds of different weapons, like he'd have these very kind of desirable images, these visions, and tried to attack the Bodhisattva through the force of lust, and, and the Bodhisattva just sat there, serene and unmoving. And he tried to frighten him, so he produced these rainstorms and hailstorms and these ghoulish sounds and horrible shrieking noises and terrible apparitions and... And the Bodhisattva just sat there unmoving. And, and this went on uh, for a while. And they say the last attack of Mara was basically one of self-doubt. So that Mara, in effect, asked the Bodhisattva 
who do you think you are to be sitting here on this spot with that high an aspiration, with that noble an aspiration? Like, who do you think you are to really think you could be free, to think that you could be enlightened? And uh, it said that the Bodhisattva, in response, reached his hand over his knee and touched the earth, and the earth bore witness to the many, many lifetimes in which he'd practiced qualities like generosity, morality, and loving kindness, and equanimity, and which in a way had created a kind of moral force that swept him up to that moment in time. So he had every right to that aspiration. So he reached his hand over his knee, touched the earth. The earth shook in bearing witness. And Mara realized he was vanquished and he fled into the night. And the Bodhisattva sat through the night and was enlightened with the appearance of the first morning star. So that's a, a very commonly used symbol of you see many Buddha statues where he's reaching his hand over his knee, and, and it is that kind of claiming of the right to be free. And I think that's an important lesson for all of us, absolutely. So it's something that I evoke again and again in that sea of self-doubt that can happen. It's really very important. So I, I was teaching in New York City not too long ago, and I told that story. You used that image, and somebody made a comment afterwards, and she said, you know, I've heard that story before, and I've always really liked it, you know, because the Buddha could have gotten up and just kicked Mara's ass, but <laughs> but he didn't. He sat there. He touched the earth. He claimed his space. And she said, every time I just want to kick someone's ass, I do that. I remind myself, just claim your space. Just hold your space. You don't have to do that. And then she came up to me afterwards. I think she was very embarrassed about having been so profane. And I said, no, I like that a lot. <laughs> I think that's a really good use of that example. And in Shambhala, they talk about, I think probably the first week you get to Naropa, they talk about holding your seat and uh, staying firmly in that seat, whether the horse is bucking or, I guess in this case, the earth is quaking, which is a pretty phenomenal. I wonder if it was a real earthquake. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's a pretty phenomenal image of I'm rooted. And I wonder if New York City, you know, I, speaking with Ethan and, and knowing the work that he's doing and that you're doing there as well, uh, and many other teachers, uh, if New York City isn't like the, one of the most important places to be teaching the Dharma, because it seems like the earth is shaking a lot there. You know, there's so much happening all the time. Well, it can be very hard for people. It's true. But, you know, I, I do still travel to quite a number of other places and and it's quite remarkable how worldwide really the the interest is and at this point you know because it's one thing to have kind of a theoretical interest and it's quite another thing to have a practical interest where you're willing to to really explore the disciplines and the and the um modalities the methodologies you know in, in a very real way for for a teacher that's also a student and always learning are there next steps for you, like next things that you want to be practicing or bringing into your practice, maybe you're thinking about or wanting to explore, maybe not even within Buddhism, or are you kind of exclusive to uh, this, this practice? <laughs> I'm pretty Buddhist. I mean, there are a lot of things that I do and uh, that I love, you know, that I also teach with a wide variety of people. You know, I teach with Krishnadas who does Hindu devotional chanting and I mean, he's, you know, a friend of mine since my first retreat in India all those years ago. We just, both of us just taught a retreat with Ramdas in Hawaii, um, who was also, you know, my first retreat. And 
as I said, gave Joseph his first job. You know, so that that's a really interesting and powerful exploration. I don't think I myself will really probably, you know, uh, you never know. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I mean, there's so much more t- for me to uncover. You know, I wish I had spent more time in real some real scholarship, and maybe someday I will. There's there's a lot to do within within the tradition. Well, I just want to express my gratitude for you taking the time to to be with us today and your stories and the way that you share has a, a real deep impact on me and I'm sure the other people out there listening to this right now. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It's a real pleasure. Let's talk again sometime, okay. maybe in the city or somewhere else. This has been a presentation of BuddhistGeeks.com, copyright 2007. Music in this podcast provided by C for Chaos. For more great music and writing, visit his blog at www.cforchaos.com. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th, in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.